It's Alex here. And Kiki. On this episode, book writer and lyricist Tommy Antonio, composer Mark Teitler, and director Natalie Abrahami tell us about Pin, the new adaptation of the fairy tale about a puppet that becomes a real boy. They shed light on their unusual creative process with two composer lyricists. What it's like writing musical satire in 2023. And the chance meeting with their producers that sparked a creative partnership. Welcome to Making Making a a Musical, musical, the the future future of of British British Musical musical Theatre. So what do Tim Burton, Danny Elfman and Little Shop of Horrors have in common? I don't know, Alex. What do they have in common? Well, they're all inspirations for today's musical. Amazing. We have a new musical on this episode called Pin and we have Tommy, Mark and Nancy with us today. Please tell us a little bit about the show and why these, well, seemingly related yet very different inspirations have informed this musical adaptation of... Pinocchio. Shall I start? <laughs> um, we we were trying to we were trying to figure out what we should call it, and a, an adaptation feels loose. So we thought, you know, loosely inspired by Pinocchio, um, and that's because the the story is um, as I, I I'm writing book and lyrics. My name's Tommy, um, and uh, we've taken the story in a in a really wild direction, far away from the sort of um, the world of Pinocchio that is generally known um, with Disney and... So no Jiminy Cricket? Well, Ooh. well, there, 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 is, there, is a, there is a Jiminy Cricket character um, um, called Ticker, which is an anagram of cricket. Um, um, I did not know this. I'm so <laughs> glad we're doing this interview. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, um, and the, yeah, the, 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 Tim, the Tim Burton, the, Tim Bur- the, the aesthetic I was looking for was something kind of like a retro futurism. I wanted to place it in, 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 in a world that's kind of known, but, um, uh, you know, familiar, but, but unknown, a fable. Um, and, and Edward Scissorhands came to mind. And yeah. then the, um, and then um, uh, I've listened to a lot of Mark's music and Mark has this wonderful, um, wonderful sort of, um, magical quality which 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 is um which is his own thing um but um we've we've sort of come come around danny elfman is a bit of a touchstone for that and then little shop of horrors i mean god what a what a show um this sort of new york downtown rough rough sort of area is 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 sort of um played with a bit there are different approaches to hidden worlds and i think that that was something when Tommy first talked to me about this project, it was clear that sort of, because Tommy's also a fantastic composer, so I wasn't quite sure why he didn't want to write it himself, because he's perfectly capable of doing that. Um, and he, and he, was, he talked about what he just said, which is, you know, you have, a t- you have this sort of attraction to creating work that is never very realistic. Um, so I think that's what those references have in common. And how did your collaboration come about? Because like you say, if you're, if you're a composer, what, what was it that made you, Tommy, think, oh, actually, I'm not the right person to compose for this and I, and I want to work in that collaborative yeah, way? Yeah, you fired yourself from your own project. I fired myself from my own project, yeah. Um, well, uh, Mark and I have known each other for a bit, friend of, friend of a friend, and um, we'd been trying to find things to work on and uh, during COVID, firing ideas back and forth, you know, as sort of... Um, uh, a sort of noir detective thriller set in Scotland, and we, all these <laughs> ideas we abandoned. Um, and then uh, um, I had this idea for a, you know a story inspired by Pinocchio, and I knew Mark's music, and I wanted his music, not mine. 
because um, <laughs> I I just don't write the I, I don't write the you know the right sort of music. So you know, Mark's the, just the right flavor. Um, and uh, the reason we're actually making it is because um, because I I I told I told this idea to a producer and he was like, yeah, we should make that. Um, so that's that's why it kind of started in the end. Otherwise, we wouldn't be wouldn't be here. And correct me if I'm wrong, you were cautioned not to write the show at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah, by quite a, quite a few people. Just like, don't, whatever you do, don't adapt Pinocchio. It will end in tears. You'll, you'll never be able to um, uh, be faithful to the story and, and find, find a sort of a dramatic musical. So have you? How have you found navigating against that? What what has been your in to the piece? Then what do you think makes it, you know, a, a attractive to an audience in twenty twenty three? Well, I always, I always, um, I've always been more interested in Geppetto than Pinocchio in a way, in the creator, in this, in this person, driven to create a um, a, a child and um, out of loneliness, out of um, frustration, and um, and then and he's the one who goes goes out searching for Pinocchio. He's the one who's who's just this act that he's always seemed like the protagonist to me. Whereas Pinocchio, I always thought of the, a sort of pinball uh, pun, in, well, no pun intended, but there <laughs> it is. Um, and uh, pinball in the machine. So that that was the starting point, really. It's um, and so Geppetto is the is is really the um, the lead character. But I mean. They're a dyad. It's a father-son story, and they're they're always they're always um, you know um, pulling each other in different directions. And um, it addresses AI in terms of, in reference to your question about what, what's interesting to an audience now. And that was one of the things that I found really interesting about what Tommy had written when he first showed me the treatment for it. Just how much it reflects what we're experiencing at the moment. I mean, in fact, I'd say you were a bit ahead of the game in what you've been writing. Right. It's um. Yeah, it's. But this is not written by AI, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be written by Pinocchio. Yeah. I am a real person. Um. <laughs> I mean, the, the other thing in the way that the the tech intersects the um, the personal is it is about the desire for perfection, and mm. obviously tech wants that, but also in in Geppetto's relationship with Pinocchio, he wants a perfect child, initially for financial gain. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? <laughs> um, yes. In the story, um, and what interested me also about it was the fact that on on that personal level, it's about embracing people as they are rather than trying to turn people. Even in fact, it's not just limited to the father son relationship. It's even in the romantic relationship in the story. The main love story, I think, has a, mm. a bit of that. There's a there's a beautiful arc, um, a coming of age, really, for the father, for Geppetto, in that sense that he, as Mark as Mark describes. Um, he wants to create, he, he's, a, he's an inventor, he wants to create a machine, um, he wants to create a, a boy, um, and actually is not really necessarily looking to be a parent necessarily mm. in that, and there's much more of a sort of slightly exploitative sort of um, element to it, and it's only through the creation of Pin that in a way Pin teaches him to be a father, and Geppetto learns to be a father, so he learns from his son, and so it's this really interesting thing of also quite a provocation of, well, what is nature and nurture if you create something, particularly if it is something in this AI mode, like it is a it is a robot, it is a machine, but it suddenly has its own agency. What who you know, who is teaching who? And it's very um I think it's kind of very provocative in that sense as a thought 
thought experiment. It's really interesting hearing you talk about uh, the fact that the original story has uh, has a lot of satire in it. And actually, that's not something I'd necessarily kind of um, associated with Pinocchio before. So how have you found writing satire um, in a world which feels like we're, we're living in satire every single day? The, the show is set in a fantastical, made-up uh, city, um, a sort of fable-like New York um, called Xenopolis. I find I can sort of poke fun at um, sort of what we might recognize as, as current technology, but sort of in its own creation um, from a distance in a sort of cartoon land. It's an absurd world, um, and, and part of, it's part of, part of the, the, the satire feeds into this, this sense that um, Geppetto, our, our, our protagonist, is, is alone as a as a as a sort of a lone voice um, uh, of of reason or a lone voice of um, a lone sort of struggling soul in this absurd world that's sort of been overtaken by um, by technology. You see all of the Xenopolans kind of having this amazing time because they are all sort of on a particular journey, and then Geppetto is really on the outside. He's sort of a he's sort of a luddite. He kind of you know if everyone it's it's set it's set in the past, but if everyone were to have a smartphone, he definitely doesn't have any phone. He's sort of kind of very retro in that sense. But he does go he does go to this kind of burger joint where he's really in love with Tina, who who runs the burger joint, and you see him sort of as despite all of his kind of amazing intellectual and scientific rigor, just like completely speechless whenever he's in the queue mm. at Burgerama um wanting and what's really lovely there's a beautiful um song in the in the in the fir- in the first half where you sort of um where sort of finally Tina has never ever noticed Gebetto but Gebetto has kind of been sort of gawping at her for for years and finally they have this kind of moment where they meet each other and she used to be a scientist as well and she's now running her family burger joint is quite dis- disenchanted and they sort of have this amazing song where they sort of fall in love by talking about science and it's a very very unexpected and sort of beautiful um, love song called Trust in Gravity. See how his face lights up with a theory. See his schematic so carefully drawn. It takes a mind of special construction to make technical jargon sound like a song. Science can tell you exactly what's happening. Science will tell you there's nothing more. But hearing him talking about network transistors, there's something happening. There ain't no formula for. I've got to try. My feet on the ground. His emotions. How did you? I I I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I I couldn't get him to work. But then something happened. Something I didn't plan. A spark. Chemistry. <gasps> Physics. 
This is the first time that I met somebody who's taken an interest in my machines. I start explaining and see how she's listening. Not even just listening, she knows what it means. Science can tell you how heat is transferred. It's the more dynamics I learned that in school. But seeing her face so close to mine now, I need a way to stop me losing my cool. I've got to trust in gravity. There's an equation on which we're agreed. I've got to trust. When there's no explanation of how to proceed, is that the time? I I I have to um.、Uh, of course you do. It's been incredible. Trust. Briefly on how this is actually quite a unique writing team in that you've got two composers, two lyricists. If we break down the nitty gritty of your writing process,、mm. lay it out for us. What does it look like? How have you communicated? What what technology do you use? Do you prefer in person? Do you prefer chatting online? What does it look like? Let's get technical. So,、um, started with a one page treatment and. Even at that stage in March 2020, I think just this A4 page with a few scenes. The story was wildly different, but I sent that to Mark. He gave me some feedback on it. So already we're in collaboration, even when you know, even at that really early stage.、Um, then the next treatment I wrote again. I'm with Mark, and we're we're discussing it, pulling apart, and he's he's、uh, giving all sorts of feedback.、Um, The next stage of creating a structure doc, where every scene in the in the piece is sort of marked out in final draft.、Um, before I got there, I'm a big fan of spreadsheets, Excel spreadsheets,、um, and the what I what I've been what I did was、um, sort of took a screenplay that I was really into、um, and watched it and and read the screenplay and went because I, I it felt like a familiar story or something that that you know. In its bones might help sort of structure the piece,、um, and uh, uh, so I, I chose Fantastic Beasts,、uh, the J.K. Rowling、um, screenplay of the the and the Ed, Eddie Redmayne、um, movie,、um, and I analyzed scene by scene just what happened to two characters、um, and and you know where the villain came in and all this, 
and completely abandoned it, but I felt like I learned a lot, um, and then created my own structure doc. Every, every character, important character, what they did in every scene, and then color-coded each of the characters um, for every scene that they're in. And what's lovely to see in an act, when you zoom out, is that you've got a sort of pa a chessboard. Um, you've got sort of Geppetto, then Tina, then Geppetto and Tina, then Geppetto, then Zoblin, then Geppetto and Pin, then Pin. And then by the end of the act, everybody's in it loads. And you see this sort of thickness coming where, where all these characters come together and you can see a visual representation of that. Um, so that's phase one. And Nancy, and it's really, it's really beautiful. It's really helpful when you're doing all of that kind of cerebral thinking, when you're all kind of thinking individually at home, and you're not really yet in a room together. But you've got this sort of shared document that you can look at because it really helps. It's the sort of thing that sometimes you only realise in rehearsals or workshops or previews, where you're like, oh "My gosh, that character's just dipped out," and we're not tracking mm. them. But you can really see it visually. So I felt like I'd never seen anyone do that sort of um, document before, and it just felt like it enabled you to do such forward dramaturgy of kind of what's going on and making sure okay ticker really needs to kind of return because we haven't tracked what happened to them since this this scene and I guess I came in you know um Tommy and Mark have been collaborating on it since 2020 and I only joined in 2022 it's now 2023 but it felt like there was already such a shared um rapport between them they were very welcoming of, of me into that and so we do have We've got lots of shared documents, don't we? And, and Tommy does, we've got a little WhatsApp group and Tommy does this really nice thing where he's like, I'm working on this song, I'm banging my head against this song. And then he'll kind of say at the end of the day, oh, you'll find it on page 22, a kind of update. So we kind of, we get to see the songs as they as they come into the new acts or kind of get to see new structure documents as, you know, we've done a workshop and suddenly these are the thoughts about what will happen next. But also what's then really interesting is that then you can kind of read the whole act when all of the songs are in place and you see how they're, put together and then Tommy leaves little notes in the script kind of saying I haven't got the fourth verse I know what it needs to be or you know how are we can do it and it feels like you're in it's not um it's not an inanimate text it's a really active conversation between us and of course we're like sort of chatting via whatsapp and sort of doing video calls as well but um the sort of the colored notes within the script I really enjoy because it's an insight to the working process and what the writer is grappling with in those particular moments. I also think that in a musical, um, music itself is a kind of heat map. It's another form of color coding um, in which you discover, I mean, I've seen, this, I've seen this when I've been writing lyrics and I've seen this with Tommy, um, how quickly songs get written. It's also a testament to his talent when the dramatic moment is right for, mm. for song. And that's another way of sort of navigating the key beats uh, story-wise. Um, there's a, yeah, it's, it's so lovely to hear you say that. It just reminded me that there's a character that um, that I think when we did a workshop a while ago that I think we all had, we found we had a real affection for that maybe he, the character doesn't immediately spring off the page but when suddenly you have an actor deliver them, suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, what is Norberg's journey? And like when you read, when, when I read <laughs> I've it... I've been working on that song as well in the second half. Oh, well, interestingly, yeah. when I read it, I wasn't that worried about, about Norberg. I wasn't deeply... In, Norberg was a character, but like was is quite a low status character intentionally sort of enslaved by um by kind of Zander Zander Zoblin and then and then Tommy was like yes and Norris is going to have Norberg is going to have their own song about wanting to be a florist and you know it's their kind of like they reveal themselves and suddenly you're really waiting for this revelation it's so lovely this quite small character everybody has through that color coding has their moments so have you been working on I've been working Norberg on that and yeah Fiam? and it sort of it um blossomed quickly <laughs> <laughs> um, what is dramaturgy 
for you? You know, sometimes it's a single role. Sometimes it's a skill set that everybody is kind of. Do, I mean, you I know, think donating. you can't make a musical without everybody, in some sense, being a dramaturg. Because, you know, as a composer, I, I mean, in terms of my process, I tend to start with quite broadly working out what the musical and tonal DNA of the piece is. And so I think in terms of this process, when Tommy and I were first discussing the treatments, I was already at the piano trying lots of different things and starting to uh, sense what felt right for the world and building the strands in that way. But you can't really do that if you haven't thought very deeply about characters and what their journey is um, and what the key moments of the story are. So for me, in, if you're a composer and you're only writing the music for a musical, you're still, on some sense, you're still in some sense a dramaturg. So if you unpick that actual process, yeah. Mark and Tommy, how, how does that, I presume, lyrics written, and then music, I mean, what, what does that give and take look like? Um, I would say for, for the, we're working on the second act at the moment, yeah. and it's sort of taking a similar, it's got a bit of a similar structure. Um, I, I, I seem to write quite quickly, so I, I find I'm maybe five or six, I've written five or six full lyrics and then bring bring them to mark and mark mark will start i mean generally chronologically i haven't been doing the second half chronologically i just wanted to do norris and bloom <laughs> <laughs> i got stuck on that i thought i'm gonna get that over and done with that's an easy one it turned out sometimes when you think it's going to be easy to crack it you're wrong mm. but this was it was calling you yeah it was calling me <laughs> exactly um i did start chronologically i started the other thing is um because this is such a heightened world I start, I did, I normally, you know, there's that cliche in musicals about doing the opening number last. That wasn't the case with this. Um, I spent quite a lot of time with Tommy thinking about how to tackle the opening number. Just because I think there is, the, it's just, again, it goes back to the fact that this is such a heightened world that if you don't know what that tone is at the mm. beginning, it's very hard to know what follows. Mm. I found the same is true for the second act. Because I, 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 you know, it's a, it's a world-building exercise, and I feel like I don't want to concentrate on individual songs until I know what the world in which everyone lives in sounds like. Hmm. How do you tackle a tricky writing day, a, a a writer's block day, for want of a, a of a better phrase? Do you grab the low-hanging fruit, the bits which you think are going to be easy to crack, or? You just power on through. Whether you have a writer's block or not, I think it's always useful to step away from stuff. I tend to sort of, um, when I'm writing a song, even if I've written something I like, I'll try and challenge myself to write something completely different and do that several times without thinking too hard about it. I think it was Ernest Hemingway who said, um, write drunk, edit sober. And <laughs> I do a lot of that. Not necessarily drunk sometimes but um it's it's that sort of process and then sort of giving yourself a day or two mm. to completely forget about mm. it i think that's the best recipe for avoiding creative block because i think part the the writer's block comes about because you're trying too hard to preempt and when you stop preempting you just write something you know and accept that you have to get through sometimes you have to get through a lot of mediocre ideas the kind that ai can come up with <laughs> <laughs> before you get to one that the, you know one that would uh, a human I don't think I experience writer's block, but I do experience like, oh my God, how am I going to bring this song together? And writing 70 or 80 pages just to find a hook, um, just a lyric, just endless, endless until, until I find it. And, you know, maybe 
five hours a day just writing and trying to find this three three words there's this song in the second half called brought to life and it took days just sitting there right just to find those three words um i think i'm quite stubborn um in terms of finding finding the, those lines um you did a hand gesture there which looked like you were writing by pen is that is that do you write yeah. in a notebook and then and then you put it yeah yeah it's all yeah um by 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 pen to find to find the stubborn line and then um yeah word processing or flipping between the two there's another song in the piece um called what do they know i guess i feel mm. like we've sort of we've slightly um been talking about the older characters in the piece and i just wondered whether we should have a little chat about um yes and yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm, mm. yeah i mean the this is this is one of my favorite songs and de- because of mark's music um and but because of because of what it means for the young pin who's been um, you know, it's the, the 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 child of a of a of a very controlling, very scared um, uh, Geppetto, and and meets uh, this um, young tomboy uh, Key, um, who's loose, loosely related to uh, to one of the characters, one of the sort of ne'er do wells that Pinocchio meets in in in, in the original text. Um, and it's in this uh they they escape um you know they 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 play hooky whilst whilst trusting gravity is being sung uh pin and key have actually escaped out the window and key's taken pin um up up onto the roof um up into the rooftops to look at the skyline of xenopolis and just sort of question adult authority and it just starts pin on this journey of self-actualization of discovering power of discovering himself um and and actually i mean the immense power that that he has um and escaping the sort of control of geppetto a grown-up is a terrible beast trying to feed you up on rumors and lies but i see through it all i may be small but small can be wise they say kids you gotta stay inside do your homework and go to school but i ain't getting on that bus eight hours a day with no play and they're saying it's good for us if you want to be cut out like a cookie go ahead but if you want to open up your mind you can make your own way instead Shining brighter than the headlights on all the 
friends. I... Papa would be worried about me. Parents just worry about themselves. That's not true. You'll see. They're all the same. I'm sorry. Run home to Papa, little boy. I kept on going home Hoping they'd be there for me They'd hold me close forever Mom and Dad and Key Maybe one day I'll show them how tough Their baby has grown I thought they'd want to know They'd want to know They'd want to know Just hearing that song, it reminded me of um, uh, sort of the, write, the writing process in, in one of the more snaggy parts of it, which <laughs> is that, um, um, well, I write, I write music as well, and Mark writes lyrics, and, um, and so I come all the lyrics I've written, I come sort of fully loaded with all these ideas like of, of how it should be, how it should be written, mm. how the music should be. And I come to Mark and just, I have to keep stum about this. Um, but um, uh, because we, early on in the relationship, we're like, right, where are, where are the boundaries? You're, I'm writing words, Mark's writing music, and we'll, we'll feed each other and we'll critique each other. But Really, there's a there's a boundary there, and we're not sort of step, treading on each other's toes, which I think is really good. Um, for this song especially, the melody and the lyric came a melody and um, the lyric came out together, like instantaneously. It, it took five minutes to write, and um, and so I came to Mark's studio, um, where, which is where we do most of the work. I come I come to Mark's sort of home studio, and I'm just like, and then he's get, showing me the melodies, and I'm like. I had a melody for that one. I got a what about my melody? And then, <laughs> and then of course he writes this one. I'm like, oh no, it should absolutely be that. Um, so there's a sense of having to kind of like, you know, just quite bitterly sort of hold back your ideas. Happy and now, still want your melody? Yeah, <laughs> I don't actually. I prefer yours. Want to be eclipsed. But what 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 feels like a, a tremendously important factor is is the sense that when when Mark, you've you've spent hours days even writing this melody and you say do you think it fits and i'm like mm, and you're like cool i'll start again yeah <laughs> every time it's like we'll go blank page blank page blank page and and the same with with nancy when you've sort of uncovered words that are maybe um you know they, they might be sort of um you've made suggestions about lyrics that might be a bit different i'm like cool right we'll rewrite rewrite it and it's very quick and fluid and flexible <clears throat> always willing to throw out the you know, throw out what's written in favor of something better, starting with a blank page, always again and again. I've I've loved that rigor about the the process, kind of and being invited into it, and the way that you you um, do it between each other, kind of allows allows someone to come into that. But it feels like because we're still at the foothills of the of the piece that you want you want just what is the best version of the of the piece, mm. and there isn't much sense of I love the idea that you had a melody in your head, but then there was a better one. You know, that you just want what is the best iteration of the. Mm of the piece and I think that we are kind of all trying to question it and that's why I sort of found that excel sheet so helpful because it just goes okay actually we are really invested in some of these smaller characters that you wouldn't expect normally for them to have their own songs but you really want them to have their own songs later because you really invest and I think that's sort of the sort of 
the piece itself, I think, is reflecting, I hope, is reflecting the nature of the collaboration, that kind of every single character in it is really holding something and has their own arc. So it kind of feels like a very kind of tight ensemble within the within the characters. And I think that that's the sort of um, part of the dramaturgy that we all sort of hold collectively and and that's I always feel like when you go into rehearsals with something that you present the model box and you say look this is all the work that we've done as a creative team but now we hand it over to you it's your playground like you the next stage is you because we couldn't do this without you and I found that even in the small amount of workshopping that we've done we've learned so much from asking the the actors and the singers mm. kind of tell us what you you know you're kind of new or you're our focus group as well as our workshoppers mm. like tell us what your first thoughts are and and because, you know, the collective intelligence of an audience is so much greater than the individuals. Of course, we can't ask 400 people at the mm. same time. But, you, you know, if you get 10 people in a room, you're so eager. And I think we learned so mm. much from that sort of two hour conversation mm. that we had with the with the singers in the last workshop we did, because we just asked them and they were incredibly candid in a very collaborative way. And they asked some very tough questions. Oh, yeah. And what, re they've really steered some of my ideas for it sure. It was so brilliant though because I we didn't feel under any pressure to answer them in that moment because I think on the first day of rehearsals if you get asked those really tough questions you've got to kind of front it out and go oh we hadn't seen that but like x is x and y mm. whereas this we could just go okay brilliant this is this is a lot and this is really mm. um, expanding our thinking we will go and metabolize it and put it into the next draft and I think that is the benefit of of doing workshops and some of the workshops we've done have just sort of been a a day like it's not mm. it's not necessarily having to be to be a week or something but it's sort of just getting um you know because we're so immersed in it as a trio any fresh input is so so welcome because you're sort of mm. that close to the paper so um I think it really highlights the importance in this industry of a trust with b between your collaborators and how important it is to find the people that you vibe with mm. there I think that the best success stories really come from when you mm. put the right people on a project. And I, I would assume a lot of that comes down to what you mentioned, a producing partner. Are you able to talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's a massive, um, it's a brilliant thing to have at this stage. And a lot of other shows or writers are, are constantly asking, how can I get a producer interested in my work? So mm. how did it work for you then? Well, um, I, it was, it was, it was a serendipitous meeting and, um, uh, during COVID, when all the all the all the chairs and tables were out out in uh, out in Soho in the street, I mean, we all remember that time. We were all all just outside. It felt like a street a coronation street party every <laughs> every day. Um, and I was outside a, a, a bar on Dean Street um, writing some lyrics for another show I'm working on. Um, and some some guys at the table next uh, next to me started just asking, "What what are you up to?" It's <laughs> like I'm writing lyrics. Oh. You better talk to Louis. I was like, "Who's Louis? <laughs> <laughs> He's coming." And then there's quite a this, terrifying story. Actually. <laughs> and then there's uh, Louis, who's who's so so charming and, and friendly, and just you know comes out and just hi there. Um, and 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 um, yeah, I was like, well, um, I was talking to his friends, and he's, you know, so I was like, well, I'm, I'm writing lyrics for a musical, and he's like, well, I I produced Emily. Um, we should uh, we should talk, and so we set up a meeting. And I was like, oh, well, I've never done that before. Um, 
So I called my I called I called a friend who's who's a bit more experienced and I said, Well what do you do when you meet a producer? And she's like, Well, come up with three story ideas and, and tell tell them to him. Um I'd already s- started sort of thinking about Pinocchio by that by that time. And um and so I went in. Um I, I can't I don't think I took any notes or anything and just sort of stood there in a boardroom, uh, sat there in a boardroom at, uh, with a cup of tea each and, and he said, So what are you working on? And I and I said, Well, I don't know, this Tim Burton, the Danny Alfman version of uh, Pinocchio. And he's like, Cool, I'm interested. And I thought, well, okay, well, I'll write that. Um <laughs> <laughs> so actually the it wasn't like I had that Mark and I had a musical which we were trying to flog. It was very much like, what what does this person what's this person interested in making? Okay, cool, we'll make that. So support was there kind of from the beginning. And 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 then and then the next time and we met so I met more of the team and Hartshorn Hook, um the, the company are just sort of like young and just up for experimentation and just really kind of active and engaged and just so into theatre. They're just really passionate about it. Um, I, so I was quite amazed as well because my experience has generally been you've got to write a lot before you get a producer mm. uh, who, who can com- who's prepared to commit to you know mm. anything financial. <laughs> um, whereas they were they just seemed to say to Tommy, "We like you and we trust you. Go away and do something brilliant." I mean, maybe they'd they, maybe they'd been secretly reading some of your lyrics. In, well, in I don't know, but the, there was a, there was a, the second the second time when I met uh, Louis and Brian, Louis Hartshorn and Brian Hook. So um, you know the two the two of them. So um, and sort of told you know talked a bit more about the about the piece, um, and they were they were talking about their approach, and they said, you know. Um, you know, we're we're more hands off. We'll um, we we like to get the best people in the room and then leave it leave it to them. Uh, just don't mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> Good no advice. Pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Which was, of course, kind of tongue in cheek. But I was like, yeah. But it's a it's a wonderful mm-hmm. challenge as well. It's like you feel the support, but you also feel like this sense of like we're all in this we're all in this together. We've all got our our, our necks on the line, you know. And um, um, they've yeah they've uh, we we sort of we talked about the our ideal workshop process, which I think, Mark, Mark, you've used before. I think this might be interesting as a sort of I think I had technically used it before. I think it was more just on the basis of uh, the things that I've got wrong in the past. I thought it, I proposed a structure, which I think is the one that we've been following, which is instead of doing... Because I think a lot of the time what happens is people turn up into, in a workshop and they do a lot of the actual writing in the workshop. Um, and I think the problem with that is it goes back to what we were saying earlier about what the ideal writing process is. I think... You write, and then you have distance from that writing. And that allows you to come up with something truly layered and interesting, in my experience. So the problem is, if you do a three-week workshop with lots of actors, or a two-week workshop with lots of actors, I don't think you come up, you'll come up with something as interesting as if you do, um, you separate out one day, give yourself a month's break, do another day with a couple of actors, give yourself a month's break, and then do the longer workshop. And I think it allowed us to, I think the first workshop, the first day was a testing formula, making sure that we liked the direction it was going in. The second workshop, which was two days, allowed us to flesh out the pieces a little bit more and, and try out the formula. And then so by the time we got to the main one-week workshop, we, were, we already knew what it was. And it was more a question of fleshing out the details. And, you know, there's a point where you can't really know any more without actually hearing it over a period of a week. Mm. And what was really helpful about that was that it was it was just of Act One. 
Yeah. So yeah. and so then and so now there's been another bit of time to kind of think about what do, what do we need to kind of for the arc into Act Two, and I think we're going to yeah. do the same sort of model yes, of kind yeah. of doing a day, taking some time, doing a couple of days, and then doing a week or maybe two weeks, depending on what we need in order to kind of get it all together for for the whole for the whole yeah. piece. But mm. it feels um a much better way of wreckying everything without feeling that the stakes are so high that you've got to be able to kind of present something with both movement and staging when actually you don't need to do that until you've got until you've got the music and the, yeah. the lyrics in in place and knowing that the book is moving everything forward because you don't want a situation where you've got the kind of book and then the songs don't actually move the story forward and then you're sort of in this kind of stop start situation mm. so we're sort of trying to move it's f everything forward together it's and cost, cost effective and um I don't know, I always think about, I think, you know, Gypsy wasn't workshopped. They just read it around a piano. And so there is an element of that in the first, the, the, you know, the day and the two days where we've just got two people in a well, room. And, and also that intimacy helps because when you, when you have a room, you know, with 10 actors, there's a, a lot of pressure to make sure that everyone is busy and doing something. Whereas when you have two, you're able, you know, you're able to do less in more detail. It's also much more accessible in terms of kind of actor availability mm -hmm. yeah. and and even just, you know, as a director and writer myself, I know that when you're in rehearsals or when you're in R&D, that is can be all consuming. If you're doing yeah. a three week, um, you know, you really can't you don't have any time to do any life things outside of that or to have that space that you're talking about. Have you done about. two or three week kind of? Yeah. I mean, even, you know, in a rehearsal process, you always think, oh, I'm going to have time after rehearsal to think about this thing or go to the bank or whatever you need to do. No, never. You never have that time if it's a constant block. Whereas actually having that space it allows you to bring life into the room. It allows you to bring your authentic experience into the room and and contribute in that way, which is so valuable. And, and I think what you're both describing is that often when you're in rehearsals, you have to kind of fix, you just have to fix stuff and you sort of put a plaster over it because you don't have the time to, you know, I've been on those processes. I think you both, you know, everyone's describing that thing where, where the writer is essentially writing overnight to fix yesterday's mm. problem and then is really tired the next day when mm. the next problem comes up and you just are never... Um, never catching up and then your script is like full of thousand different colored bits of paper and, and then and actually also it doesn't when you then do it all together you're like oh it doesn't even make sense anymore because mm -hmm. these things don't line so just having a little bit of space between each things means that I think it kind of it just feels like the joins are kind of you're not being as reactive you're being able to respond and also I think with workshops often there's a sense of a confusion sometimes or not perhaps confusion is unfair but that sort of sense that there's a dual purpose to them on the one hand you want to experiment and on the other hand you want to you're, you're rehearsing for a presentation mm. and I think often they get in the way of each other I think the useful thing about the model that we followed is it allowed us to do all most of the experimentation in the shorter workshops when we have two actors and there's not so much pressure in the room and and of course we made I mean we made a lot of discoveries in the one week but that happens almost as part of rehearsing the material and knowing that you're aiming for a presentation Mm. So it allows you to really, uh, you know, pin down, pun intended, what you want to do. <laughs> so thinking towards the future, uh, and now that the material is kind of coming together, what, what does that look like for PIN? And, and what are your kind of hopes and moving forward? I think we're sort of aiming to kind of have Act 2 ready for a workshop sort of towards the end of the summer. Mm. I think we'd really like to do that. And I think we're sort of at a point, we're sort of talking about it just... Um, 
before that we're at a point where probably we need a few more people in our creative team to help kind of do I think we, we need to find our musical director because that is another sort of dramaturgy and also I think a designer and a choreographer mm. because there's a particular because there are so many non-humans in the piece there's a sort of choreographic and movement element I think mm. would be really interesting to do, to discover and likewise there's quite a few there's lots of lots of Wonderful challenges in the in the piece, and, and I was really encouraging Tommy before not to censor any of these. Like we're not at the stage where he should be starting to think about is any of this possible. But I think w it would be a, it is a good stage to invite a designer into that early thinking process to be able to think. And I don't think the next workshop has to have design or movement in it as such, but to be able to invite a designer and movement director who are kind of going to be involved in the process long term to be able to kind of sit and absorb the material and be part of that sort of dramaturgical thinking, I think would be really mm. constructive mm. to then hopefully if everything goes, if we find that we're happy with the book and the lyrics and the music at that after like exploring act two, then we can hopefully go into sort of pre-production phase where we can be thinking about how we can actually make it. So I think expanding our team a bit would yeah. be good. Mm. And in fact, something that you said is I think when we first was that everyone you work with normally is a dramaturg on some level. And I think for a musical that's particularly important because, you know, the earlier the choreographer gets involved, the earlier mm -hmm. the designer gets involved, the more everything fuses and you, you get something really interesting. I think that's great. And it's, it's so wonderful to hear the really specific insights into your process and, and the development. And hopefully listeners will be able to take something away to, to apply to their own process. Mm. And I think we're all really excited to see what happens with pain and perhaps purchase a ticket one day and, and see it fully realised. Making a Musical is produced and hosted by Alex Jackson and Kiki Stevenson for The Other Palace. If you've enjoyed this episode, follow and rate the podcast wherever you're listening. It helps us share new British musical theatre with audiences all around the world. You can submit your new musical to be featured on the podcast at theotherpalace.co.uk. That's it from us. Join us next time for more Making, Making a, a musical, musical, the future of British musical theatre. theatre.